Hello, dear Pen Live podcast listeners. So nice to have you here again. This is Joyce Davis, Pen Live's opinion editor, coming to you with another Battleground PA podcast. Today, we have another scintillating conversation ahead of us. We have our trusted analyst, Rajette Harris and Jeffrey Lord, who are going to talk about everything from paying tribute to a civil rights icon to why don't you just wear your mask? So stay tuned. We will be right back. And guess what? If you want to join us, you really can. You just have to send an email to topics at battlegroundpa.org, or you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Battleground PA. Hold on to your seats. We're about to begin. This is Battleground PA, a pen live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, I am back, Joyce Davis, Penn Live's opinion editor, and I have with me my two trusted analysts. I can say that now. We've been doing it for a long time. Rajette Harris, representing the Democrats, and Jeffrey Lord, representing the Republicans. But the truth is, you both represent yourselves, don't you guys? <laughs> Best I can. <laughs> <laughs> Rochette, we know, is an independent voice, although she sides mostly with the Democrats. Am I right? Yes, I've been a Democrat all my life. There you go. There you go. And Jeffrey, you have not been a Republican all your life. Is that true? No, I have been. I have been. But I was just more liberal when I was in college, you know, that sort of high school, college period. But when I first registered to vote, you know, when you could, as a matter of fact, when they gave you the right to vote at 18, I did indeed register as a Republican. Okay, because I know you were enamored with the Kennedys. and uh, Exactly. Drove my parents crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. But anyway, guys, I want to start off with a little bit of a tribute. And I I thought, give us the opportunity to simply pay tribute to what people are calling, and I think rightfully so, a civil rights icon. We've lost another one, John Robert Lewis, the son of sharecroppers who we remember as being involved in the 1965 march in Selma, Alabama, where he was actually beaten. He's died at the age of 80 after a battle with cancer, but people are simply lauding him across the country. So, Rajette, I know the Democrats are looking at this as a real loss. Do you want to say anything about his legacy? Well, yes, he was definitely a giant. And what I personally um, admired about him the most is You know, he was a champion of civil rights, but he took that activism from when he was young to, you know, running for office and taking what he marched in to bring permanent policies that would help all Americans. You know, you think of what he went through. I mean, having his skull fractured, being beaten, being in jail 40 times, but he was also a very forgiven man. You know, he forgave a lot of the people who did such wrong to him. And I think that's example to all of us because we live in very petty times. Yeah, that's a very good point. He rose above it, to put it that way. He rose above it. I'll tell you the other thing. He was definitely dedicated to peaceful protests, although not everybody who looked at these folks thought they were peaceful, Jeffrey. I mean, you and I clearly remember these times. And they were considered rabble-rousers. I mean, the Freedom Riders were not necessarily welcome in many white communities, I believe. 
You know, frankly, Jeffrey, don't you think these would be the Black Lives Matters people for today? I mean, they are. Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, my, my only thing with Black Lives Matter is the leadership, which, you know, freely calls themselves trained Marxists and all that kind of thing. That certainly was not the case with John Lewis and Dr. King. And I think it is hard for people who were not around in the day to understand just how outraged Americans were when they watched this on television. You didn't have to be in Selma, thanks to television, to see it. And when the pictures went out, you know, in the day, Life magazine was alive and well and, and uh, you know, a, a, a weekly type thing. And I'm pretty sure, and as a matter of fact, I think I kept it. I think it's down in the basement somewhere, a picture of the protesters and John Lewis, et cetera, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. And it made such an incredible impact on well, the country you know, Jeffrey, and, you, and was without doubt responsible for the passage of the or partly responsible, at least for the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because that is what the march was all about. Right. That's what his legacy is, is, you know, he once famously said that your vote matters. If it didn't, why would some people keep trying to take it away? You know, and that's how we can honor his. I'm actually doing a tribute to the congressman tonight on my Facebook page at seven. But that's how we can continue his legacy is to vote. But I, I would like to point out that he actually supported the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a picture of him with the current D.C. mayor where they're on the Black Lives Matter on the, that street in D.C. where they took a picture of him. Uh, that was just earlier uh, this summer. He also supported the NFL players who kneeled during the pledge. Remember, he always said it's good. To, what was that? It, we need to get into some good trouble. Good trouble. <laughs> good trouble. <laughs> because it's that good trouble that brings awareness to the problems of this country. But again, he didn't just talk about it. He ran for office against Julian Bond, someone that yeah. he marched with. That was interesting uh, to read about how close that was. But he knew to make that permanent change, we have to have the policies in place. And both of you know how much I stress that because that's the only way that we can have permanent change. So he was an activist, but he was also a legislator. Well, look, you, you raise a good point. This man, John Robert Lewis, was, was truly dedicated to change, to civil rights change. And yes, he was supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was supportive of those people out on the streets marking. He was supportive of peaceful protests. What I think um, is so regretful for me and for many of our age is that here's what he said in 1960 when he was a freedom writer. He said, we do not want our freedom gradual. We want to be free now. And, and Jeffrey, I hear what you're saying about some people claiming to be Marxists, but you know what? You know, a lot of people are offended at trying to uh, hurt this movement, which is doing a lot of great things by taking some and by trying to label all of those people out there as Marxists. Or, cause oh, no, 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 no. I, I certainly wouldn't do that. But but it is it is it is an on the record fact that the leaders of the group identify themselves that way. Finish, That's a fact. The point that we're trying to make is some but some people may, but the people who are out on those streets who are supporting yes. the movement are not. They are good. I, Americans. I agree. Trying to do what this guy did, John Robert Lewis did, to try to bring a better America, a truly better America for us all. So with that, I, I just think there was another civil rights uh, icon, too, who apparently died. I wasn't as familiar with Reverend Cor Cordy Trindle, but he apparently was a force as well. And um, he died at the age of 95, another civil rights leader 
who participated in the Freedom Rides, and he worked alongside Reverend Martin Luther King. So, Regette, we are losing some great leaders, some great civil rights leaders, most of whom were, unfortunately, Jeffrey in the Democratic Party. But I'm going to turn now to look at the next generation, Regette. You've just been selected as a Biden delegate. So we need yes. to turn and uh, celebrate you as the up and coming leadership. How are you doing and what do you plan to do for Joe Biden? I'm very excited about getting chosen. I'm an at-large delegate, which means I'll represent the state. I had been a congressional delegate in the past, but I really think that we are at a turning point right now in our country. And I think us losing such giants at this time in history takes us back, reminds us of the past and how we don't want to repeat it. So I'm very excited about being a delegate, and I plan on doing everything I can to uh, get Joe Biden elected president. All I can say is a new boss has been born. <laughs> and, you know, we're in Harrisburg, of course, and on the corner of the uh, state capitol grounds is the statue of Boys Penrose, who was the longtime Republican senator from Pennsylvania, but he was more than that. He was the boss literally, of the Pennsylvania Republican Party and all of this. So we have a history of bosses in Pennsylvania, and I think Rogette will fill those shoes admirably. Or, or Well, you know, I, actually, I have a picture on my wall that says boss lady, so. Well, another <laughs> is that we have another civil rights leader emerging. That is another way to look at it as well. <laughs> Am I right? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, history keeps moving on. And as with a lot of things, I would hope we could, you know, John Lewis and all of this mission accomplished. And on we go into the future. Fortunately, Jeffrey, mission isn't accomplished. Well, but that's not true. Think about it. The congressman even had legislation where he was trying to restore parts of the Voting Rights Act that was voted back in the 60s that the Supreme Court has gutted. So he was still fighting some of the battles from the past, not counting the battles we have now. I mean, educate me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know where people are being kept from voting as they were in 1965. Are you claiming that there's no voting suppression anymore? I think mail-in ballots could be counted as uh, voter suppression. So I think we're uh, perhaps going to have a disagreement over what voter suppression is, you know, what actually constitutes voter suppression. But, you know, everybody has the freedom to register to vote. Everybody can show up and vote. If that's not the case, it's a violation of federal law. Well, there's still a lot of voting suppression, and, and mail-in voting actually is helping to expand voting. It makes it easier for people to vote. I mean, um, there someone... was a case in, just in New York just uh, the other day where they were talking about this at length. You know, they had their primary in New York, and a Democratic—this was in the Democratic district on, I guess, the east side of Manhattan— Carolyn Maloney is the incumbent Democratic congressman, and she was being challenged by, I guess, one of the progressive, you know, AOC-type Democrats. Well, that was in June, and the thing is still undecided because they had all these snafus with mail-in ballots. That's okay. not good. I mean, you know, if that's what's going on in a Democratic primary in New York in June, what does this mean for the election in November. I mean, that's not good. Right. But I, I know I have experience with that. As you both know, um, I was in a bad car accident and had my ankles broken. If it wasn't for mail-in voting I, at that time for our primary, I wasn't driving at the time. Um, right. How would I have voted? 
So that's well, an example of absentee, how it helps I mean, I, I, make a, I make a differentiation between absentee voting where, where you have a reason like that, or I voted on occasion, you know, when I was uh, working in Washington and couldn't get home for a primary, you know, I would vote absentee. But to do this with absolutely everybody, or God forbid, to make sure that everybody can only vote by mail-in ballot, that's just not good. I mean, that is ripe for all kinds of tangles. And Well, but what about know? people who can't make, to, make it to the polls? You know, some states have early voting. Some people work, especially service-oriented jobs. They yeah, have I'm not sure hours. that's a good idea how either. They, how do they make it? Uh, not everyone can make it to the polls in that certain period. Oh, guys, you know, it, voter ID requirements. Well, you know what? I, you know, I mean, here in Pennsylvania, I, for instance, if you are an ex-felon, you can go. Guys, I know you disagree on mail-in voting. We can't stay here. We've got a lot to talk about. Well, no, no. I was bringing up other points. Like, in, uh, there are some states that if you are an ex-felon, you cannot vote. Why aren't their voting rights restored? Now, in Pennsylvania, you can, even though a lot of them are told that they can't vote, which right. is not okay. true. Well, listen, but that's a type on. of voting suppression. On. We've got issues over mail-in voting, but I'm going to tell you, to me, it ought to be possible. I mean, if you can't get there, you ought to have another way to do it. There are a lot of people who simply can't get out their home. They're homebound. They're sick. They're whatever. There's an emergency. It just makes sense. We're a country of can do, not can't do. Especially I just, I just want to make sure that we don't leave this segment of the conversation by saying that there is not still voting suppression in this country. Go because ahead, tell us about voting suppression and then we'll move on, but go ahead. Well, I was trying to. I brought up the fact that in some states, if you're an ex-felon, and we all know that there are disparities within the criminal justice system, depending on racial disparities, you are unable to vote, which dis disenfranchises a lot of people. There's an easy answer to that, though. Don't be a felon. Well, oh, some Jeff. people don't go out trying to be a, a, a oh, felon, Jeffrey. I mean, that you're saying that everyone who's arrested should be arrested. Everyone who's jailed should be jailed. That's not true. We have protests now of people who are being murdered for just being who they are. That's just not reality. Those are some alternative so, facts so, there. And, of course, people do get second chances. They should get second chances after they're out. But anyway, let's let's move on. We've had a good de debate and discussion over the voting and suppression and all of that. We need, really need to talk about one of the issues that's affecting Pennsylvania quite directly or that threatens to. And that's what's going on in Portland, believe it or not. Governor Wolf has come out to say he doesn't want federal officers. They wouldn't be welcome in Pennsylvania. But it looks like, Jeffrey, the president is moving uh, federal officers uh, into Chicago, just as he did into uh, Portland. And that's causing people some angst. But explain what is going on from your, I mean, why would you, why would the Republicans support such moves? Because the Constitution, let me read the section of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 3. He, meaning the president of the United States, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, quote, unquote. The president of the United States has the right, the not the right, the constitutional duty. It says he shall, not he can or he can think about it. He shall faithfully execute the laws. Now, that means protecting federal property, among other things, which has a statutory responsibility as well. And I've certainly seen, as I'm sure Lots of people have the photographs and the television images of the Mark Hatfield Federal Courthouse in Portland that is all spray painted all over. They set a bonfire in the entry hall, et cetera. That's destruction of federal property. 
That is a violation of federal law. The president so of the United States. Have confidence, so he does not have confidence in the local law enforcement to protect the federal the federal. Well, property. clearly they're not doing it. This has been going on in Portland for two months, and they're not getting it done. And the well, president of the United States has a constitutional responsibility to do it. And I, I mean, I see these statements from Governor Wolf and Senator Casey, and I think, good Lord, these are this is the senator and governor of Pennsylvania. Where the Constitution was written. We're not only seeing it from them. Apparently, former Governor Tom Ridge, who's a Republican, said, I, and I'm, I'm appalled, and he's he's flat out he's coming to the Commonwealth when he was governor. So it's raising some concerns there about the cooperation. What? Why aren't people kind of working together? But Rajet, I mean, I, I think Jeffrey does raise a good point. Does the, the the president has an obligation to protect federal property if he believes it's not being protected? So how are Democrats responding to this? I think that the president should have listened to the state and local officials that told him not to bring them into the city because what they have done is they have made it worse. They're not announcing who they are. They're tear gassing people. They're spraying people. They've escalated the situation. So I think that he should have listened to the duly elected officials within Portland and worked with them in the way that they saw fit to help de-escalate the situation instead of made it worse. There's a reason why you see Democratic and Republican governors and elected officials across the country saying that they would not have wanted that into their state and cities as well. Was, I mean, you know, this is the United I, issue with the exception, as usual, with the president. I mean, I have to say, when the FBI arrests, let's pick at random, a mafia don on RICO charges, or when the, the drug enforcement agency uh, comes in and arrests a drug kingpin for nar narcotics, or the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms uh, arrest an unli unlicensed gun dealer who's illegally shipping firearms, whatever it is, the federal government is in all 50 states all of the time doing these things. And no governor says you can't send the FBI into Philadelphia to arrest a mafia leader. I mean, that doesn't happen. It, and, and this kind of stuff goes on every day in American life all of the time. So what is the difference here? See, but Jeffrey, I don't think we normally see federal officers coming in and arresting peaceful protesters. I think that's what has people. A well, they, they were on yeah, they were on a near federal property. But not necessarily to go in and take young people who are protesting peacefully off the street. You can't you can't destroy off. federal that's, property. That's and that's what well, they were doing. You know, the I, point I, is, I, the president does not agree with the protests. He doesn't like the Black Lives Matter movement. He's been very clear with that. This isn't about so, Black Lives Matter at this point. This is about wanton rioting and destruction of property. This has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. Nothing. Well, but you're not you're not you're not uh, talking about the issue though that the local and state officials told the president not to not to interfere. They have escalated the situation. They're not making it better. This situation has been going on for months before the president said boo about sending anything in. They don't have it under control. They're letting anarchy run their cities. I mean, a great example of this was the mayor, the mayor of Chicago tweets out to the president saying all sorts of terrible things. While she's tweeting, 15 people are shot in her city at a funeral. She has no control over her own city. She's going after the president and people are getting shot in the streets of Chicago, 15 of them, all at once. That, well, that is crazy you know, The stuff. president is tweeting while people are dying of the coronavirus as well. So, you know, we can we go back whoa, and forth. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
He's been doing a lot of tweeting when he should have been acting as well. My 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 point is is that the these mayors and governors in a, on occasion have lost control of cities under their jurisdiction. The president has a constitutional responsibility to see that the laws are obeyed, and that's what he's well, doing. I will say that there is concern because the threat is that he may be sending officers into Philadelphia. So let, let's just stop here, but I'll come back and we'll take up another look at the coronavirus and what's happening there. But we have to take a break. And when we come back, we'll resume our conversation with Jeffrey Lord and Rajette Harris. So stay tuned. Okay, I'm back. And as I said, I think that we've had a, a real debate over the federal officers coming into cities, sometimes not at the behest of governors and mayors, which is causing a little discomfort and disquiet in its own way. I just want to add one thing. We were talking about John Lewis. Yes. And all the attention with John Lewis, or a lot of it at least, focuses on what happened on Bloody Sunday. What is forgotten is that shortly thereafter, and precisely because of what happened on Bloody Sunday, Dr. King organized a march from Selma to Montgomery, and President Johnson sent 10,000 federal troops into Alabama to protect them. To protect. In other words, George Wallace sure didn't want 10,000 troops. Bring them in now to arrest peaceful protesters, not to protect them. I think there would be a whole different ballgame if they were coming in to protect them. But Let's move on. Look, we've got to talk about the coronavirus because we still see it spreading, including, unfortunately, uh, new cases in Pennsylvania. You know, it just makes me wonder what we're doing wrong and whether we really will be able to have these schools reopen as we're hoping in a few weeks, right? I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but it doesn't look good and people are getting skittish. I know many parents are getting skittish about sending their kids back to school, Roger. Yes, a lot are. That's what's so disheartening with the debate now going on in Congress regarding you pretty much have three separate bills. You have what the president wants with the new stimulus package where he wants to tie in funding to schools, or should I say lack of, depending on if they reopen or not. You have the Democratic bill where they want to put more money into, you know, hospitals, testing. We have a huge testing shortages, families, the unemployed and whatnot. And then you have the Republican bill that wants to put more money into businesses, which we know the first set of money didn't go to the to the small businesses that should have went to in the first place. Um, I still remain, as I mentioned last week that opening up the schools should be up to the local communities, the local school boards, local officials, along with the parents to do what's best for the children. And I can at least speak for Dauphin County area. It seems like the schools are, are sort of doing a mix. They're going to have a virtual learning for those parents who are able to homeschool. We can't forget not all parents can do that. And then they're trying to do a mix of maybe in school two days virtual other days, but then they have to figure out the childcare. So I do see the local communities at least trying to work together to do what's best for the children. Well, right. And and Jeffrey, I know you you said you have a cousin or something who is a yes, teacher. Yes, she's so a teacher she's in New York City. Huh? Exactly. Right. She says and it's she, a mess. She, and, I, and I'm sure it is. I mean, there are all kinds of things that I think those of us who are not on the front lines think about. For example, how many square feet per kid in a room? How many people in the building simultaneously? I mean, if you've got, I mean, when I went to high school in Allentown, there were 2,000 kids in three grades. 
Well, it was a fairly big school, I mean, in, in a physical sense. But if you suddenly had to deal with the virus back then, I can't imagine, you know, there, there just simply wasn't enough room to, you know, space kids out and social distance and do all these kind of things. So it's a problem. On the other hand, I would really like to know the kids in Western Europe, Australia, et cetera, et cetera, are going back and they don't have any problems uh, of any significant degree. Then they waited until the numbers were reduced. They weren't going up when they sent them back. That's that's the big difference. No, but I mean, they're not going up once they're there. That's yep. that's yep. my they point. And why is that? Well, and that's one reason you have the teacher unions, like in Florida, they're suing, actually, uh, based on this. Because as um, I'm sure both of you know, uh, Mitch McConnell wants to pass legislation where, you know, these schools and these businesses can't be sued if someone gets sick sick and potentially dies. If you're going to force people into a situation that isn't safe, you can't take away their liability. And that's one of the reasons why you see some of these teacher unions representing the teachers taking actions in the court. Because if you are going to put people back in these schools, you have to make sure that they're protected and they have the equipment and the testing necessary to keep people safe. And some of these other countries you mentioned, Jeffrey, they have much better testing. Our testing is taking up to two weeks in some individuals to get the results back. How many people within that two-week period are you coming in contact with if you are positive with the coronavirus that you could be infecting? So we need to get our testing under, under control, in my well, opinion, before we even start talking about opening up these schools. Ahead, Two things. Number one, I do think that the rise in numbers is directly related to the rise in testing. I mean, I assume in all over the world, for that matter, that all kinds of people have this. They haven't been tested for it. So the more people you test, the more you're, you're going to find cases. That doesn't necessarily mean the death rate. And as a matter of fact, I was reading this uh, online site called Penn Live. Oh, um, how nice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it says, and I'm quoting directly from the story, it's talking about Governor Wolf and Secretary Levine. It says, quote, fewer people, now we're talking Pennsylvania here, quote, fewer people are dying or requiring hospital treatment than in the spring. But health officials are worried about the rise of infections among younger adults, unquote. So in other words, for all the headlines, the death rate is going down. And the thing that here in Pennsylvania, and the thing that really gets me here, and I did go back and take a look at this in a national sense. When this first appeared, the predictions in the media, I mean, they're just, they were unbelievable. The New York Times said 2.2 million people were going to die, Americans now. The Washington Post said it was 1.1 million. They expected a million people to be dead by May in California. I mean, on and on and on went these absolutely gross predictions, none of which came true, not a single one, all based on on modeling and all this kind of thing. The modeling clearly was faulty. How people behave, that's the difference. If people behave differently, the modeling changes. It was a a shutdown here in Pennsylvania that mitigated some of these effects. So, but the point is, I don't think anybody, neither one of us, uh, any of us are arguing. We're in a horrible situation with the number of people dying and the number of people getting sick. And, and, And frankly, Frankly, what we're seeing around the country is that deaths are increasing. Now, let's not put wrong information out. This is a serious situation. Many parts of the country, hospitals are being overwhelmed. We're just hearing reports from doctors of they're being completely overwhelmed. This is nothing to make light of. This is serious. 
And if I'm, not making, I'm not making light of it. Can I just interject here real quick, please? A lot has to do, too, with the leadership of that particular state. You know, our our governor, Tom Wolf, has made the hard choices. I mean, he's being sued again because he's putting restrictions on bars, restaurants, and certain public entities because people aren't doing those three main things. You know, wear a mask, you know, wash your hands, use sanitizer. It's very simple. If people would do what they needed to do, we wouldn't have to keep going back and forth. You know, in other states, the sheriff yesterday was on the news in uh, Jacksonville and Florida, where the Republican convention is going to be. He came out and said there's not enough time to ensure safety for everyone. You know, our Democratic governors, especially here in Pennsylvania, and Governor Wolf is doing what he needs to do to keep people safe, even with the lawsuits, even with the tweets, even with the Facebook posts. And as what was mentioned, our cases aren't as bad as in other states. You know, we need leadership to make those hard choices, and we don't have that nationwide, unfortunately. Well, let me, let me say, we need leadership on some other choices, too, because apparently we're looking now about whether we're going to have another stimulus. Because, look, even though we're reopening, these businesses still are going to suffer, especially if these cases keep rising. Look, sick people don't go out shopping. <laughs> they just don't. Sick people don't go sit in restaurants. And if the numbers keep increasing as they are now, if we don't get in control, we're still not going to have businesses able to sustain themselves, support themselves. We're still going to have people unable to work. So let's talk a little bit about this stimulus. Now, now, Jeffrey, on, on one hand, I'm going to tell you, I get the concern that people have about continuing to find money. Where is this money coming from? I mean, I know we need it. I, I think we both agree it would be great to simply give away money. But are you concerned, as are so many Republicans, about there's going to be a price to pay for this? Yes, I am concerned about it. My favorite uh, quote out of all of this is from uh, Senator Ted Cruz, whom I've uh, met a little yes. bit. And he said, I'm not a no, I'm a hell no. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and there is a reason for this. I mean, if if we get ourselves so overextended, the economy will collapse. If you think we've got problems now, I mean, we had problems because of the lockdown. I mean, if the economy just blows up because we're so far in debt, we can't get out of it. That's a serious, that's serious problem. I just don't understand. That's something I really, really can't get my mind around that. I mean, just as a normal person, when you spend and you continue to spend, you continue to spend, at some point you're going to get broke. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, but, yeah but where was Ted Cruz's hell no when money was being given out to the richest Americans and to big businesses? Small businesses didn't get the first part of the stimulus package. And let's not just talk about businesses. Let's talk about working Americans that are unable to work right now. At the end of this month, that extra unemployment check ends. Yep. So what are they supposed to do? We have to think of the working people. We, we're always bailing out the banks. We're always bailing out big businesses. It's time we bail out the working people of this country. So well, that should be a hell yes. Yes, their measure. It's a $3 trillion measure. They've already passed that to try to bring some more money. Now, I'll tell you, I was having a conversation yesterday with the president of Centric Bank, and we did, did a Facebook Live. And, you know, even though she's concerned as well about the continuation of, of giving all this money, a federal money, the fact is people can't survive without it. I mean, I, we spoke to one of the business women. If it, had been for, if it had not been for that stimulus check, her business would have gone, it would have been kaput, no right. doubt. And she wouldn't have had food on the table. So it, we really are in the catch-22 here. 
But clearly, Jeffrey, the Republicans are divided on this. Yes, they are. There's no question. You have people like Senator Cruz, Senator Rand Paul, etc., who are adamant about this for spending purposes. And you've got other people. And frankly, I know exactly how this works, having been there. You've got a Republican. You've got Republicans that are a lot like Democrats. You know, they're indistinguishable. You know, the only question is, where do they want to send their favorite federal spending? It's not, you know, should we do it at all? It's, it's, you know, which squeaky wheel gets the grease, and 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 that is a problem. So at some point, I don't think I don't think caring about the American people is a problem. What a problem is to me is that you have the president that's open to another stimulus package. But again, he's trying to attach some of his political agenda. And yes, this is politics as usual, but he was supposed to be different from the politics as usual. You know, we're we're back to attaching. We're we're still trying to attach defunding the schools to a stimulus package that could help millions of Americans and small businesses across this country. So, you know, that's something we have to look at, too. And I guess what I understand on that, too, Jeffrey, is apparently in this what he's trying to do, at least the president, is not test, which, according to everybody, we need to do more of, especially as we're opening these schools. To, and, and again, it's not to try to show the numbers are high or whatever, but to try to identify where the virus is to be able to contain it. Why would the president want to stop stop testing? Why would he take funds, want to propose to take funds away? from figuring out where the virus is. I don't know that he's doing that. I mean, obviously, I mean, I listened to him last night. He's doing everything he can here well, to, to proposals, deal, deal with them. Yeah, the proposals that we've seen here say that the president wants to defund testing. <laughs> I mean, that's that. if that's not correct, that's great. That's great news. But we're I'm looking at all these reports saying he does not like testing. And he said that himself. He thinks it shouldn't be testing. And he wants to defund testing. That is a concern. Because, you know, I I really do get the concern and the debate over spending. But you're in a catch-22, guys. If Americans are starving because there's no money, there's no food, there's no businesses open, and the government is still seen to be functioning just fine, having their little uh, hamburgers in the office or whatever, that's not going to look good either. Do you guys see any way we can mesh all of this in the next few weeks? No. <laughs> <laughs> the short answer, no. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, I, I just have to say, I, I mean, as I say, I have been there and seen this over and over and over and over again. And what happens, I'm reminded, since we were talking about John Lewis, I was, I, I, I saw a quote from him the other day in one of the eulogies where he said, tension is good, tension brings about change. Now, of course, he was talking about civil rights and that sort of thing. But but as a, as a working principle, Dr. King believed in that, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, and, and so did Mahatma Gandhi, who was Dr. King's hero. And, mm-hmm. and in point of fact, what happens here is the tension and the back and forth is going to build and build and build in Washington, and then the dam will break, and they will have to, because of various deadlines, reach a solution and and that's what that's what will happen it'll be messy without doubt but it well, will got, happen they've got to well and the president and other republicans need to continue to evolve you know at, at his press at the president trump's press conference uh, yesterday he finally said you know it's going to get worse before it gets better just a month well, ago that's... he said it dis- it disappeared but he's looking at the poll numbers and he's starting to evolve as all of our presidents do on different issues. 
you know, he tweeted a picture with him and a mat with a mask on and things of that nature. So he needs to though continue to evolve even more. And in addition to some of our Republican uh, leadership, because you can't solve a problem unless you accept that it's there. I just don't and want them to evolve into Democrats. Is accepting. <laughs> well, we accept. We we believe as a Democrat, we believe the science. We believe there's a problem. <laughs> you know, well, we I believe, believe the science. And that's all I'm saying is follow the science. That's it. But they're not. Everyone's not. So let me just say this. I want to give kudos to the president for evolving. If he's wearing a mask, if he's telling people to wear a mask, let's pat him on the back and say, thank you, sir. That's where we need to. Because here's what the latest published study shows from PLOS Medicine, I believe, if I'm saying that correctly, that there's clear guidance on how we're going to get this under control, that there's a consensus, social distancing, right? Staying away from other people, wearing masks, and testing. Those are the things that are going to help us get, and it's worth repeating. So what do these findings mean? It says that raising awareness and hand washing and mask wearing is crucial to controlling the epidemic. So let's close and let's hope that both sides, including all the extremists, get their mask on their faces. Are we all in agreement with that, Jeffrey? Yeah, well, sure, but I, I no but. I mean, as I move around here in, in the middle of Pennsylvania, uh, I don't see a person without a mask. Oh, you I, I mean, every place I go. They're out there. They're out there, unfortunately. They really are. They really are. Now, maybe they will be fewer. I mean, uh, Rajette, we have to give it. Maybe they will be fewer because they see the president wearing the mask. Do you have hopes that that will certainly change some some opinions? Well, I think there's going to be fewer because these businesses don't want to have to close down again and they're mandating it and not allowing people in their stores right. without a mask. You know, unfortunately, since we didn't get the leadership from the our, our elected on the federal level, the businesses are taking the leadership and saying, if you want well, service, you have to wear be. a mask. You know, because if people wore a mask and did those three simple things, nothing would have to be closed. I mean, yes, it's a little inconvenience, but we could stay open. So the people who are complaining about the masks are the ones that are causing the restrictions and the shutdowns. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. Well, we've had another great conversation and I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Please do join us. We continue this conversation on Fridays at five on Facebook Live, Penn Live's Facebook page. So come in with your questions and comments there. And as a bit of housekeeping, I won't be uh, here with you next week. We're taking a little bit of a hiatus so I can have a vacation, but we'll resume the following week. But see you on Friday on Facebook. Bye-bye. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at BattlegroundPA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by PenLive's opinion editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. More info and past episodes can be found at battlegroundpa.org. Dot org.